Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 17, Electrochemistry. In this episode, we shift from organic chemistry in the mid-1800s to the simultaneous development of electrochemistry. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. The last couple of episodes dealt with the foundations of organic chemistry, but there was a lot of other chemistry being researched in the early 1800s, including the nascent branch of physical chemistry, particularly using Volta's invention of 1800, the electric battery. And with the new electric battery, which can run chemical reactions, we return to the work of Humphrey Davy. As I mentioned in a previous episode, Davy was, at heart, a showman, and he loved to put on a good chemical show as lecturer for the new Royal Institute founded by the American traitor Benjamin Thompson, Count Rumford. His lectures were well attended by Londoners, including one woman named Jane Marset. Jane herself had an interesting background. She was married to a doctor, Alexander, who attended the medical school at the University of Edinburgh, where we encountered Dr. Joseph Black, one of the institution's famous chemistry professors. Alexander Marset was also interested in chemistry, and he, with Jane, tried a number of chemical experiments at home. And, of course, she was at Humphrey Davy's lectures. Being interested in science, Jane Marset began to write books specially for women on the topics and she used Davy's lectures as a stepping stone for one of her most famous books, Conversations on Chemistry, intended more especially for the female sex, the first edition of which was published in 1805. The format was a popular one for several hundred years, a dialogue between different people with different views, giving the author a chance to argue out the correct point of view. Galileo did this two centuries earlier in his Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems. In Marset's book, the teacher, Mrs. Bryant, discusses chemistry with two students, Caroline and Emily. Marset's chemistry book was wildly popular, going through many, many editions throughout the 1800s in both Britain and the USA. One of the people who read Marset's book in its earliest editions was a teenaged bookbinder's apprentice named Michael Faraday. He found that he was keenly interested in chemistry. During the seven years he held that job, he was able to take home many of the books he was learning to bind and read them in the evenings. By the close of his apprenticeship, Faraday was able to get tickets to Davy's public lectures in 1812 and took careful notes. He recopied them into a 300-page book, which he sent to Davy. Davy was impressed with the young, self-educated man. The following year, Davy, whom we already know was doing some rather dangerous experiments, injured his eyes with nitrogen trichloride, and hired Faraday as his assistant after Davy let go his previous assistant. Later scholars often called Michael Faraday Humphrey Davy's greatest discovery. 
Faraday's practical brilliance began to outshine his mentor, Humphrey Davy, eventually taking over from Davy the directorship of the laboratory at the Royal Institution in 1825, when Davy fell quite ill. Among his accomplishments were liquefying certain gases such as carbon dioxide and chlorine. He worked with oils for heating and illumination, and discovered the organic compound benzene. By 1818, he had taken a class in elocution and became known as a splendid lecturer, according to J. R. Partington. He also continued Davy's public lectures on chemistry and became famous for his Christmas lectures for young people. Which continued to this day at the Royal Institution, Faraday's lectures were compiled into a book of six lectures in 1861 entitled "Chemical History of a Candle." The idea was to explain combustion for children, and even suggested some experiments that young people can try at home. In a way, Faraday was a 19th-century version of science popularizers Carl Sagan and Neil deGrasse Tyson. Faraday's introduction says it all. I propose to bring before you, in the course of these lectures, the chemical history of a candle. There is no better, there is no more open door by which you can enter the study of natural philosophy, than by considering the physical phenomena of a candle. There is not a law under which any part of this universe is governed which does not come into play and is not touched upon in these phenomena. Faraday's most famous scientific work was with electricity and magnetism, and the focus of our interest, electrochemistry. He was trying to show that electricity generated by his invention, the electrical generator, was the same phenomenon as electric current supplied by a battery. When he discovered what are now called the laws of electrolysis, remember that electrolysis is breaking apart of chemical compounds using electricity. Faraday himself invented the term electrolysis. Law number one: the amount of chemical change in an electrochemical reaction is proportional to the amount of electricity flowing through the solution. Law number two: the amounts of substances deposited or dissolved by an amount of electricity are proportional to their equivalent weights. Law number three: a fixed amount of electricity. Corresponds to one equivalent weight of any substance. This law is really a derived law from laws one and two. If amounts of substances are proportional to amounts of electricity, then we get more circumstantial evidence of atomic theory. We get a hint here that just as materials are made of atoms, electricity is made of electrical atoms and is not a continuous fluid. For there seems to be some kind of one-to-one -one correspondence between atoms of metal deposited or dissolved or electrolyzed, and the atoms, if we want to call them that, of electricity. You can even imagine that during the time that electricity is going through a solution, atoms of some substance are being pulled to an electrode by these atoms of electricity. Sometimes one atom of electricity can do the pulling. And sometimes it takes two or more atoms of electricity to pull the atoms. But let us remember that atoms were still not a clear idea, nor fully accepted in Faraday's time. So Faraday himself was not particularly fond of this view. But whatever the process, clearly the electric force could overcome chemical affinity, 
and run chemical reactions. And likewise, chemical affinity could be transformed into electrical force in a battery. The two forces could be converted into each other somehow. Faraday asked a colleague, a classical scholar and philosopher of science who knew Greek and Latin well, the Reverend William Whewell, what to call all the parts of these electrical systems coming into use at the time. So Whewell invented the term electrolyte, from Greek leucin, to describe the solution through which electricity can pass. Those parts of the battery or cell that stick into the solution are electrodes. The electrode with a positive charge is an anode, and the electrode carrying a negative charge is a cathode. The current itself flowing through the liquid was carried by a lot of ions, Greek wanderers. The ions moving toward the positive anode were negative anions, and the anions moving toward the negative cathode were the positive cations. Of interest to us is also that Whewell invented the word scientist on June 24, 1833, at a meeting of the British Association of the Advancement of Science. Whewell was talking when the poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge objected that a person digging up fossils or testing electrical apparatus shouldn't be called a natural philosopher. Whewell agreed and gave an analogy that just as artists do art, a scientist should do science. The first time that scientist appeared in a publication was in 1834 by Whewell. So, from this time forward, we can finally use the term scientist instead of natural philosopher. I should also add that Faraday became a friend to writer Jane Marset, acknowledging his debt to her in bringing him to chemistry. Once the laws of electrolysis were understood, there were obviously practical applications and maybe even money to be made. Professor Robert Hare, Jr. at the University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater, constructed a battery with 18-inch by 24-inch zinc and copper plates. From this battery, he connected long wires and then explosives and could set off the explosives. On the other hand, Hare became well-known for crackpot beliefs in spiritualism and mediums, along with communication to the dead. In 1836, a British chemist, John Frederick Daniel, with two L's at the end of his name, invented a new type of battery to try to reduce the hydrogen bubbles created with the voltaic pile. His idea involved using another electrolyte to remove the hydrogen gas, that is, a second chemical reaction. The reaction system in the Daniel cell is a copper container holding copper 2 sulfate solution. This copper container, acting as an electrode, is itself inside an unglazed pottery container holding sulfuric acid with a zinc electrode. Overall, we are reacting zinc metal with copper ions to make zinc ions plus copper metal. The Daniel cell also had an electrical advantage. It created electrical power more consistently than the voltaic pile, which rapidly lost power. Thus, a variant of it, the gravity cell, became the standard for powering telegraph systems around the world, and by 1881, it became the standard electrical cell used to define the volt. 
Another development was the invention of electroplating. William Cruikshank deposited lead and copper in 1801, but Luigi Bugnatelli, a friend of Volta, demonstrated actual gold plating on silver in 1805, and he is now considered the founder of electroplating. Yet his work wasn't taken seriously for decades. With the quantitative measure, the laws of electrolysis finally revealed how much electricity would deposit how much metal. By 1839, independently in Russia and Britain, workers figured out how to electroplate copper printing plates. In Russia, a Jewish scientist born in Germany named Moritz Yerman von Jacobi did this, especially for the technique called galvanoplasty or electrotyping, that is. Reproducing metal parts exactly. John Wright invented the use of potassium cyanide as the electrolyte for electroplating, and shortly thereafter, George and Henry Elkington bought out Wright's patent in 1840. Later, they began to plate silverware and sell plated metal decorations. In Russia, electroplated religious icons became popular. By the way, the Elkington's patent notes that the Daniel cell or variant was the best electrical source known for their electroplating method. And one of their assistants who worked on the project and drafted the patent was a man by the name of Alexander Parks, whom we shall meet again when we talk about polymers. The following year, the Comte de Rolles Monchal in France also patented a scheme for gold and silver plating. And at the same time, a young artillery officer named Werner Siemens was confined to his barracks for involvement in a duel. He was interested in von Jacobi's experiments and got a variety of electrical equipment smuggled into his room while he was confined there. He invented a process using sodium thiosulfate with silver salts, similar to the daguerreotype, using electrical batteries, and sold his process to a local jeweler. Eventually, he got his brother to visit the Elkingtons in England, and sold them the patent. We know his legacy today: the Siemens Company, a worldwide corporation known for electronics. Also, at this time in the early 1840s, a German doctor, R. Bütger, invented a practical method for electroplating nickel. Nickel, of course, is much cheaper than silver and doesn't tarnish like silver. Bütger's invention was a solution of nickel and ammonium sulfate, which was used through the 1920s. By the 1850s, commercial electroplating on nickel, brass, zinc, and tin became popular. In the United States, the first person to be in the business of electroplating was Daniel Davis Jr., an instrument maker and photographer from Massachusetts. His 1843 advertisement read, in part. Magneto-electric gilding and silvering done to order by Daniel Davis Jr., 11 Cornhill, Boston, Massachusetts. Watches, spoons, knives, thimbles, brass or copper ornaments of all descriptions, gilt or silvered. French scientist Gaston Plante went even further than the Daniel cell, which was limited by being an irreversible reaction. The Plante cell, designed in 1859, used lead for the anode and lead dioxide as the cathode. The electrolyte was sulfuric acid. The total voltage per cell was two volts rather than one volt for the Daniel cell. 
and the battery could be recharged by applying voltage to the electrodes, so the battery could be reused many times. If this battery sounds familiar to you, it ought to. It is the direct ancestor of the automobile battery, also called the lead-acid battery. If you group six Planté cells together, you get the 12-volt standard car battery. We know that lead is a toxic substance, but these days practically all lead in car batteries is recycled. Not long after Planté's innovation, another Frenchman, Georges Leclanchet, developed and patented another battery containing an ammonium chloride electrolyte, a carbon anode, and a zinc cathode in 1866. Its voltage per cell was about 1.4 volts. Within about two decades, this Leclanchet cell was converted into a so-called dry cell by congealing the electrolyte using plaster and other soluble chemicals. Dry cells don't have sloshing or spillable liquids, meaning they can be carried around without dangerous chemicals leaking out. This is the ancestor of many of the batteries we see in shops today. The new invention of the telephone required local battery power, and these dry cells, often in a wooden box next to the gadget, were used as the electrical power. Other innovations, such as NiCad (nickel-cadmium) alkaline batteries, manganese dioxide alkaline batteries, and more, appeared at the very end of the 19th and well into the 20th centuries. Lithium-ion batteries we shall also discuss later on. But while all these innovations were going on in the practical world of chemistry, Faraday's idea of electrolytes as liquid conductors of electricity, combined with some kind of wandering ions holding and moving the electrical charges themselves, were obviously a mysterious question. How did this transport of current happen? What are ions exactly? No one could agree. And there was this side issue of the mere existence of ions in a solution with no current running through it. Obviously, that can't exist. The ions only exist when current is moving around, right? German scientist Rudolf Clausius, whom we shall meet in more detail when we get to thermodynamics, showed in 1857 that molecules broke up into positive and negative parts in solution and are not attached to each other. It seemed that electrical current didn't break up the molecules, only moved them around after already being broken up. The whole idea of ions was just weird. An answer would begin to appear in the 1880s, but that will happen later in our series when physical chemistry finally appears as a full subdiscipline of chemistry. In our next episode, we return to organic chemistry. We dive deeper into the problem of molecular structure for organic chemists, particularly regarding the idea of valency, or how many atoms can connect to one atom. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast. Music